Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Thanks so much for listening to this special feed, The Sound of Pride, Stonewall at 50. I'm Tobin Lowe, co-host of Nancy. If you like what you hear, you can find more coverage from WNYC by visiting wnyc.org stonewall50. And if you love these episodes as much as we do, we encourage you to subscribe to all of these great podcasts and share your favorites with your friends. Okay, Kath, what is up next? Up next, an episode from us, our podcast, Nancy. Hey there, I'm Kathy Chu. And I'm Tobin Lowe. And we're the hosts of Nancy, a podcast from WNYC Studios. Nancy features stories and conversations all about the LGBTQ experience today. We're a show about identity, how we define ourselves, our gender, our sexuality, and the journey it takes to get there. On our show, we've talked about everything from high school students going to prom and drag, to finding chosen family, to the first ever pride celebration at the Pentagon. And in all the reporting we've done, we found that for people in the LGBTQ community. Coming out can mean a lot of things. So this hour, we have three conversations about coming out. But these aren't your typical coming out stories. Yeah, because, you know, when we talk about coming out, we usually focus on opening up about your sexual orientation or gender identity. But at its heart, coming out is about taking a risk and sharing something deeply personal with total strangers and family alike. For example, our colleague David. When he moved to New York City in 1980, he was chasing love. Stephen and I met, and he was in graduate school, and I was in undergrad, and he was a native New Yorker. David and Stephen ended up living together in a tiny apartment in the West Village, setting up house, David called it. It was a wild time to be a gay man in New York. Uh, I'd like, it was time to be in love and be, time to be young. Then, in the mid-80s, people around David started getting sick. Stephen was diagnosed first. He died of complications from AIDS not long after. Then David was diagnosed with HIV. He was 29. And recently, he came to us with a question. I've been HIV positive 30 years, so I thought, I have no idea now what a young person testing positive or trying not to test positive goes through. All I know is the AIDS crisis. We're not in the middle of a crisis, but... I thought, I don't know what they think. And maybe there are things they want me to know about them that I am unaware of. I mean, I was really curious. Like, did we go through all that and nobody knows anything? And how do we pass that on? Did we did we go through a plague for nothing? Did we learn anything? So with the help of Gay Men's Health Crisis, GMHC, which is an HIV-AIDS prevention care and advocacy organization here in New York, we arranged for David to talk with Dominique. Dominique is 32 years old, and he too is living with HIV. I'm a part of a community called the House and Ball Community. Got to tell the old guy what that is. So the uh, house. That's me, the old. Tell daddy what that is. So I'll give you first. I'll give you a little bit. Uh, Do you remember Madonna? She came out with the video. This is a little. Yeah. So Vogan, right? Vogan comes from the house in Ball scene. Mm -hmm. Yes, it's um. Paris is burning. Paris is burning. Yes, it's all of that. I know a little bit. So it's like a, it's like a family, right? It's um little. It's a subculture, and it's family. We we create these houses which um are families, and inside these houses we do have parent roles, like we have the mother of the house, the father of the house. 
and things of that nature. Do you and, live uh, together? No, so we don't live together. So we call it the house because it, it was to confirm like the designer houses, like the house oh, of Gucci, okay. the house okay. of Cartier, things like that. And then how did that lead you to GMHC? So GMHC had a house called the House of Latex, and it was a prevention house. Um, and not only were they a part of the community as um, walking and competing in the categories such as Row, Vogue, and Runaway, um, they also were like a prevention house. So they would be at the boss handing out condoms um, and information and referrals. And, and you were like part that. of that house? Yes, I joined. I did a little community service with that house, even though I wasn't officially a latex because um, I was always in my own house. What's your house? Um, my house currently is the house of St. Laurent. I am the mother of the New York City chapter. Um, but be, at that time, it was the house of prodigy. So, When did you first test positive? Uh, 2000. First, what a stupid way to say it. You only do it once. Yeah. When did you test positive? 2008. I felt really invincible at the time. Mm-hmm. Because even though I was— Did you I think was, it was possible at all? Did you no, even consider I didn't. it? No, and it's so—it it's it, it was such um, an ignorant part for me. Yeah. Um, I, was, I was very ignorant because— I was like, I don't do drugs. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't hang with those people. Quote. Um, I don't do risky behavior. I'm in a relationship. I'm faithful. My partner's faithful. So um, there's no way that I can be positive. Um, my partner couldn't, even if he was cheating. You know, he had a really fit body. He took care of himself. Health conscious. He doesn't have nothing. I wouldn't know he had something. And at the same time, like I said, I was working at GMAC where all the information is there, right? Um, but I still felt invincible, and I still was ignorant around the fact. Um, that anyone can get it. What made you go get the test? I got a call from someone just saying that I should get tested, um, that my lover was cheating on me, being messy. The person was being messy, but at the same time, I was like, okay, whatever. Mm-hmm. And I uh, went to go get tested. And um, it was a shock to me when I first went to go get tested because they, uh, you know, they said, you know, you are HIV positive. I'm like, what? Me? No. Tell me about that day. Um, wow. The day I found out that... um. I was positive. Still is like, um, still very touching and painful. I was talking to my friend because my friend tested me. And I could tell something was a little different because when he came in, his his, like, his whole aura was like, oh, Dominique, I got to tell you something. So I knew right then and there. And um, stomach dropped. Um, I broke into a sweat. Um, And I just, like, thought my life was over. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do. I didn't know. I really didn't know how I was going to, like, make it, right? Um, So I didn't know if I could tell anyone. Um, How would they look at me? How would my job look at me? Mm-hmm. Being oh, that I'm, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah. How, am I, how, how am I telling people to use safe sex and you're you're in, you're working in prevention. Working in you're prevention. working in prevention yeah. central. Yeah. yeah. Well, I lose my job is what I thought, right? Um, what happened? So I sat in that. I sat in that for a couple of maybe a month or two, just just me knowing my status and just and keeping you, it to myself, not disclosing to anyone. You didn't tell anybody. I didn't tell anyone. Um, I stopped talking to my lover um, at the time, and you know, I just was like, it's, it's not going to work out. I didn't confront him or anything. I just sat in that space. Um, so you didn't even tell him. No. Wow. I didn't even tell wow. him. Wow. Um, and so um, the first time I ever disclosed it to someone was we were having a group at GMEC. And we was work, working at um, we was working with um, at risk youth, mm-hmm. and there was this bold and brave young guy who was sharing his story with us. And he was surrounded by his peers, and they were all looked like, "Wow, 
okay. And then they they started making little comments like, well, we knew you were sick because you were very thin. And it kind of like hurt me, right? And yeah. then I said, well, you can't never tell the way a person looks that they have HIV. And I don't know what came upon me, but I said, um, I have HIV. Do I look like I have HIV? And you can hear a pin drop. Even my boss looked at me and and I was like, yeah, I just did it. I just did it. And that's when um, the first time I really felt free. I felt free. Wow. And so from that point on, were you at ease? Were you? Um, I was at ease for a while. Um, being that I had the support, like I said, of GMEC. So that's where I worked at. That's where I spent a lot of my time at. Um, so everything was great. I, what I believed, what I thought I was great, right? Um, I thought everything was fine because I was there with people that supported me, that loved me, that understood, right? And didn't judge me. Um, but what if you go however, outside that circle? Exactly. Yeah, what if you go So yeah. when I started to venture outside of the circle and started like having a life and going to the clubs and even in the ballroom scene mm-hmm. where I was so respected, right? I'm, I'm, I was popular in the ballroom scene because I was a trophy winner. I was very popular and um, I had a lot of people looking up to me as a leader. Mm-hmm. So when I did come out, that changed. And um, Came out about your status? That it, is, changed? Yeah, it, st- it changed, yeah. It, how? Um, stigma. And, and, did people say something to you? Or did yeah, you just... dirty little things. You hear them mumble. You hear them say stuff. I remember one time I was inside of a club, and I walked in a club, and for some reason, like, it was a really dark club, and the spotlight was shining on this one person. And I can read his lips, right? And he said, he's cute. And his friend turned around and was like, child, he's dying. So that's like a term they say about when they're kind of defining somebody with HIV. Um, he was like, child, he's dying. And I was just like, take a step back. And I was like, okay, time to go home. And... um. And I started experiencing that more and more, right? Um, I just started hearing things in my own community that didn't sit right with me. People being judgmental and so much hate, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I'm surprised at that because I thought if you're testing positive now, you've got information and you've got medication and you have all these things I didn't have. Yeah. But Stig- I had that same kind of stigma. Yeah, stigma still. Let me say something. Stigma I'm, I'm is still unfor- alive. I'm sadly mm-hmm. surprised to hear it. It's hurtful, right? And um, especially for people to me, when I say that looks like me, because we have to fit. We have to go through like what it is to be gay, right? Mm-hmm. We know how hard that is, right? So not only do I have to go through that, I have to go through what it means to be black and gay, all right? What it means to be black and gay and HIV positive. What it means to be black and gay and HIV positive, as well as being feminine. All right, what it means to be black and gay and positive, feminine, and believing in God, and that's a lot. And you come from a really religious family. Yeah. The day you told your family, how long after you tested positive? Oh, what was that? Maybe. Did it take a little time, or did yeah, it you took do a little it right time? On? It yeah. took a little time, and I, I, mean, I didn't disclose. I, I kind of got caught. My mother was snooping around and saw some. Um, paper. Okay. Um, and I, on the paper? You know, I, it was from, from HRA HASA. I was signing up for a program to help me with, like, my medicine and Medicaid and all that. And she's like, what is this about? And I was like, oh, that's someone I work for. And mom being mom, she did her investigation. And she that's when she found out. And, you know, it was like the Batman line. Like, one call she made, and it called, like, all my aunts, all my uncles, my grandmother. And everyone was like, hey, how long have you been positive? Why you didn't tell us? I'm glad she found that paper. Yeah, I'm glad she found it. <laughs> Would you have got, gotten around to telling her? <laughs> um, I don't know. Never say never. Um, yeah. Parents are different. Parents I mean, are different, but I didn't want to be a disappointment. I'm the oldest child as okay. well. I have little brothers. 
And at that time, I was like, oh, this is is a disappointment, right? I come to New York to be this great person, be the first person in my family to go to college and to be somebody and now look, right? Because when you think about somebody being gay, the first thing they think is, oh, you're going to catch AIDS, right? So now I have to go back and say, hey, I'm gay. Yeah, actually go back to that. From my age and testing positive so long ago, um, we didn't know we were going to get AIDS. So I know when I came out, it was like— Oh, yeah, and things have changed a huge— You're gay? You're going to be gay? You're going to get sick, Right. That's, yeah. that, that's what it was. So See, that's, now, the, that's the comment that made me go, huh? I and guess. then nowadays, it's not even that. Now it's like, you're going to be gay. You don't have to get sick if you take this blue pill. Take prep. And you don't got to worry about ever getting sick. What, so, do, you, what do you take? Um, So I take uh, Complera. Don't even know the name of that one. Oh, uh, yes, yes, yes. I'll take Complera. It's a cocktail. Okay. And I can't pronounce like so many of the different ones. The pieces of it, yeah. yeah I just I take Complera. No, and it take, sounds so pretty. I'm taking Complera. It sounds pretty. It's, like a, it's pretty know. now. Right. Right? It's pretty knowing that um, <laughs> one pill that all I have to do is Is it take, really one pill? Yeah. That's all I have to do is take will. And it's pretty oh, you because— dog. I have never taken only one pill. Well, I take one pill for that. So I have a lot of other things going on. Yeah. Um, I fell into a depression, stopped taking my meds at one point, um, and I contracted um, a meningitis. Right. Um, I was drinking a lot, started facing like liver failure. So I had to, I take a lot of pills, but not for the HIV, but complications from the HIV. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, oh, me too. I mean, but, at one point I was getting high cholesterol because of one of my yeah. HIV drugs. Mm. So I had to take extra cholesterol medicine on top of it Yeah. because I couldn't stop the AIDS drug. It was mm. an old one. They don't even give that to any people anymore. Yeah. But, um, being life, like knowing I have to take these pills and knowing that it's a part of surviving um, is what gets me through it, right? Do you feel bad about being HIV positive? No, 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 no. Okay. I don't feel bad at all. I don't even regret it. So people say, if you could go back and um, change everything that happened, what would you do different? And I'm being totally honest, and I don't know if I tell you. Be totally ch- honest, please. I wouldn't change anything, right? I made a conscious decision to be in love, right? Um, If I had to change one thing, I would say I wish I was— in a relationship with someone that was more honest. But they were like, people were saying, you know, would you have wrapped it up? And I know this is not a safe sex message, but no, I probably wouldn't use the condom because I was in a trusting relationship. We were getting tested, right? So I wouldn't change anything. And I just think this is my purpose in life. I think things happen. Um, That's all a part of my great destiny, which is God's plan. I don't know if I would change anything either because yeah. it was wonderful to come to New York and be in love and yeah. and not have to think about HIV and AIDS. Yeah. And yeah. And I think people you meet, right? And I seen how much I loved myself. I I I seen how much love that is in the world because I'm positive. And I I don't think if I was positive, I would never have experienced that. And that's what if we date, we still have to disclose. We have to find a way to do that. I get it out the way right from the beginning. Yeah, what do you do? I I get it out the way. I say, hey, my name is Dominique. I got 10 inches and I'm HIV positive. No, I don't say all of that. I was going to say, are those, is that all true? No, no, I wish, mm. I wish, I wish, I wish. But it's a good line. Yeah. No, so I always say hello. Got my attention. Yeah. yeah. But I, I, because what I've learned is when I wait to disclose and I I'm, I'm think I'm protecting myself, mm-hmm. but I'm really not because I, I, I get feelings for this guy. And everyone's at that point where they will be open to date someone that HIV is positive. And even if they do date someone that's HIV positive or open to it, they might not want to date someone that's HIV positive and open about their status. When you hear someone my age talk about the 80s or what it was like or everybody was dying, what do you think? We're still dying. 
it's just it's different. Um, I think a lot of I, I see a lot of my young black youth dying still to this day. Now it changed the, the communities that that are dying. Um, changed. Mm-hmm. So and it's not talked about as often, and but it's still around. AIDS crisis is still around. How many friends of you of yours have you lost? So many. I've lost so many people. Um, I'm sorry. Yeah, people say you know it's not the '80s anymore. Um, people not dying from it. And yes, they are. They're still dying from it. They're still being affected from it. I know black men are getting affected, especially the black youth. Mm-hmm. We're getting affected. And um, we're still dying, right? Um, a lot of the stigma—it's not, cu- not cured. No, it's not cured. What do you think the future is going to be? What we make it, all right? What are you making it? What we make it. So we're going to make it. We're going to keep on educating. Mm-hmm. We're going to keep on fighting. We're going to pray. We're going to educate. Keep loving, and hopefully, um, with all that, th- the spread of HIV and AIDS will will be done. Anything you want to know about me living in the 80s and being where I'm at now? What do you want to know from the old white guy? The old white <laughs> guy. Um, how are you making it? I just do the next right thing the next day. I take my pills, I show up at the doctor, and uh, I try to be useful. I, it's very important to me what we're doing here. Because we can't have gone through all this for nothing. We can't forget about it. That's why I wondered, like, what do young people know? What don't they know? How do we pass this on? How do we make this worthwhile? And uh, I remember being told early on by my one of my best friends because the guy I loved who died wanted to look the other way all the time. He wanted to go to a different doctor who'd say something different than what he wanted to hear. And I go back to what my original doctor said was just be informed. And my best, best friend said, if that means that the doctor wants to see you every other day, I want you to show up every other day. And not every day is a medical problem for me. I've been spared. I have not landed in the hospital. I did not lose every friend in the world. But I'm still living with this every day. Uh And it just becomes, it doesn't become you, but it becomes a fact about you and you need to just deal with it. So I show up. It's probably it. I just show up every day. And that'll make this worth it somehow. My bunch of guys led to the next bunch of guys led to you, and you will lead to them. And hopefully we'll keep talking about it. Yeah. I hope so. Um, I want to say thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, don't it means stop. a lot. Yeah, don't stop doing what you're doing. You neither. Don't not Keep stop. going on. Um, I mean, I love that you're talking to people. Yeah, and I love that you're talking to people still, all right? Thank you, my dear. All right. Hug time. Oh, you sweet man.
That was David Gable speaking with Dominique Kristen. This is a special episode of Nancy, the podcast from WNYC Studios all about the LGBTQ experience. After the break, Sarah tracks down the person who helped her see a future as a queer person. That's coming up. Don't go away. And we're back with a very special episode of Nancy. I'm Kathy Chu. And I'm Tobin Lowe. We're the hosts of Nancy, a podcast from WNYC Studios all about the LGBTQ experience today. In this hour, we're talking about a different kind of coming out, sharing something deeply personal with another person. Tobin, you know how when you're a kid, especially a queer kid, if you're lucky, you might come across an adult who shows you who you could be one day? Oh, absolutely. It's the Ring of Keys thing. Yeah, exactly. So this is something the queer graphic novelist Alison Bechtel talks about. As a kid, she had that moment when she saw an adult butch woman wearing dungarees and a ring of keys attached to her belt. And she realized that she could be like that woman when she grew up, that she could be a happy queer adult. It was her ring of keys moment. Producer Sarah Liu didn't know it at the time, but she found her own ring of keys person as a kid in the tiny town in Wisconsin where her family vacationed during the summer. The owner of the town's general store was a woman named Mora, who wore flannel and boots and had short hair. Sarah didn't spend a lot of time talking to Mora, but she was totally entranced by her. I thought she was super cool, and I couldn't quite put my finger on it. And I wasn't usually, like, a shy kid. I was a pretty talkative, precocious kid, actually. But around Mora, I kind of clammed up a little bit. There was just sort of, for me, this sort of, like, charge in the air, like, uh, kind of like an electricity or something that just, like, something was up. Later, when Sarah eventually realized she was queer, it all clicked. Without knowing it, Mora had been Sarah's first queer role model. And Sarah decided to track Mora down. It had been more than a decade since they had last seen each other. So Sarah was surprised when Mora agreed to meet. <laughs> wow. How's it going? Look at you. What's up? I haven't seen you in like 15 years. This is amazing. You're so grown up. <laughs> I can't believe it. Okay, well, do you want to go to the studio? I would love it. Awesome. The name of my store was Henry's, and my name is Mara Katujian. The first memory I have of your story is you had like a bunch of back issues of Outside Magazine that, like, <laughs> didn't sell because they were old or yes. something. But you're like, but it's a cool magazine. And then you gave me a bunch of, like, <gasps> copies of it. And then I read it, and, like, I still subscribe to that magazine. Wow. And I've read every issue for the last 20 years. So. <laughs> I'm just, I'm smiling ear to ear. <laughs> So how would you describe the general store? Oh, I think I had this idea in my head. Grab your backpack, grab an amazing pen, grab a notebook that feels good to you, and go walk outside and write. In my memory, there's this sort of like Northwoods, Norman Rockwell almost, Ooh. nostalgia kind of thing going yes. on. Yes, and it gave me an opportunity to kind of live in this alter ego of the North Woods and 
snowshoeing and, and skiing and wearing buffalo plaid and kind of the fantasy of the 40s and somebody being in the Adirondacks, although we were in Wisconsin at the time. I was always open. And I never hid being gay, but I never necessarily talked about it. It just wasn't, unless it was part of the conversation, there's no reason to. I, did I ever say, I don't remember ever I don't, saying anything about a partner. I, I can't imagine I would did. have. Yeah, like, it's not like you're like, hi, hi I'm, I'm gay. Welcome to Henry's General Store. I'm a homosexual. <laughs> the pens are over there. <laughs> I've always kind of wondered more about your life. Can I ask you sure. some personal questions? Yeah, absolutely. Um, can you tell me uh, when and where you were born? So born in Newton, Massachusetts and grew up in Waltham, right next door. How would you describe your childhood? It was awesome. I was incredibly lucky and am incredibly lucky to have parents who always encouraged us to think outside of the box, even when things like gender identity and sexuality were not part of that thinking outside of the box. I was very fortunate. I went to Armenian school. I did Irish step dancing. No wonder I'm so confused. <laughs> um, can you tell me more about your alter ego? Um, there's always been a part of me, certainly since I was younger, that I liked guys' stuff. I liked guys' clothing. I thought it was much cooler. I thought, why every time I want to buy something does it have to be purple or pink? So I think there was that little alter ego, that other part of me, whether we want to call it androgynous, uh, growing up. I feel very fortunate that I have had that. I get to see kind of both sides and to sometimes be called sir, which still happens. I'm 53 and I'm it still happens. Yeah, I get sirred also. I look like a teenage boy right now. I'm wearing a yes. flannel. I have very short <laughs> hair and jeans. I've sort of had the same thing. And up until I was probably in my mid-40s, people still thought I was a, a young boy or couldn't quite figure out why I had such soft skin uh, <laughs> and gray hair. <laughs> um, there were those moments when I was little where people would say, oh, your sons are so handsome. And I'd be like, oh, I loved that, right? It was empowering. Yeah, I feel like when I was misgendered as a kid, I thought it was awesome. Yeah. And, like, it embarrassed other people. Yes. I wasn't embarrassed. Yeah. You know? I would get embarrassed when other people would figure it out, and then they would be embarrassed or something. I mean, one of the worst is I was wearing a shirt that had the Declaration of Independence on it, and somebody came along and, thinking I was a boy, put his hand on my chest and was reading it. It was one of the worst days of my life. To this day, I still remember, and it was a lot worse than just like, ooh, that's uncomfortable. Uh, I've never really forgotten that moment. And so, yeah. What was the hard thing about that? I think the hard thing about that was laughing about it afterwards, that everybody found humor in it. Haha, isn't that funny that he thought you were a boy and you were actually a girl? What am I? What can I do? What am I allowed to do? I think I always knew something was, there's no doubt I knew from a very, very young age that something was different, but I had no language for it. I had no visual language for it. Uh, nothing.
so I used to come to your store mm -hmm. with my parents probably around 1996, 1997. Wow, just when I opened. What are your impressions of me then, or how would you describe 12-year-old Sarah? 12-year-old <laughs> Sarah was so, gosh, you were so cute. I remember you and your parents would come in. I can still see it. You put your hands in your pocket and you dig them deep in, and you'd kind of tighten up your shoulders a little bit, and everything became not stiff, but certainly regulated. Your head would be down, but you'd kind of look up at me. It was so sweet, so sweet. And I used to think, oh, I wonder, you know, I wonder if she'll be gay. And I do my best. This is not how I, I don't go around <laughs> making assumptions, and, and I don't think we, anybody should go around and make assumptions and assessments. However, I was doing with you in that moment what you were doing with me. There was a connection. I think it's just game-recognized yeah. game. And there's a certain skill or, like, art to being a gender-fluid person in the world. Ah, and when you, like, see someone else doing that, it's like, oh, hey. You, you, it looked familiar. So, like, in my girlhood, I think it was cool to be a tomboy or encouraged. But, like, around 12, you sort of mm. get the message, that's not cute anymore. Or, like, if you're going to grow up, you have to change. And then going to your store where there is this, it opened the possibility of like an adult tomboy <laughs> life that was of personal significance. Both the store, but also you as an individual embodying that too. Mm. Being a little awkward 12-year-old gay kid and then seeing a very charming, confident gay adult it allowed me to imagine a, mm. an adult version of myself, which was huge. But also the layer of my parents thought you were cool. And so that made me think that they would approve mm. of me being gay. Wow. <laughs> so that's a lot. <laughs> Do you have any? <laughs> um, you get up off the floor. <laughs> Thank you. That is the, oh, I am getting choked up. Yeah, thank you. Ooh, I never knew that I could. It's okay. <laughs> that I could actually be a role model for somebody. That's pretty powerful. That's really powerful. So thank you. Thank you for being that role model. <laughs> <laughs> wow. It's interesting that I may have appeared confident 20 years ago, that deep inside, and not at all. What was going on? I just couldn't seem to find a lot of happiness. So I was happy on the one hand, and yet I can remember feeling like unhappy on the other. I think I was depressed and didn't really know it, didn't understand it. I think, I think a lot of what was going on was still not sure who I was. I just didn't have the confidence in me. I loved my store. I knew that the store uh, represented me. That felt good. I knew how I fit when I rode my bike. I knew how I fit when I was in my canoe. But yeah, there was a part of me that didn't know how I fit in the world. I was just trying to figure this out on my own. 
And were you the you were the age that I am now when what? I met you? I was 32 when I opened yeah. Henry's. Yeah, and I'm 32 now. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yes. Okay, Sarah. <laughs> I think you already know this, or I hope you do. You are gonna be okay. <laughs> you are awesome. I look at you and go, gosh, I wish I were that cool when I was 32. You have your parents who support you. You're married. I'm, uh, congratulations, oh, by the way. You. you too. Yes, I just got mm-hmm. married on New Year's Eve. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. So I have one last question. Yes. How do you keep your keys? How do you carry your keys around? How do I carry my keys around? Oh, here. I'm going to show you. Yeah. All right, hold please. on. Oh, isn't that awesome? It's something I would have carried at Henry's, right? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. The outline. I can't believe I love my keychain. <laughs> um, do you want to see my keys? Yes, oh, I do. <laughs> of course, I have a Crafty Beaver Hardware Store customer rewards <laughs> tag on it because I go okay. to the hardware store. Okay. Could lot. we just, <laughs> you know, that's like your lesbian ID card. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> That was Sarah Liu and Mara Katujian. I'm Tobin Lowe. I'm Kathy Tu. You're listening to Nancy's Pride special all about a different kind of coming out. For our final story of this hour, we're going to hear from our friend Jason Kim. Jason is a screenwriter. He's worked on shows like Girls and Barry. And when Jason was a kid growing up in Korea, he and his dad were inseparable. But as Jason grew older and the family moved to the U.S., they drifted apart. Jason knew from an early age that he was gay, and he worried a lot about disappointing his dad, even though they never really talked about how his dad felt about it. By 2018, they were barely speaking. Then, one day, Jason's father called to say he was very sick. His kidneys were failing. Jason wanted to help. He got tested and found out he was a near-perfect match to donate a kidney, but his dad wouldn't accept it. Jason suspected it was because he was gay, just like he suspected that his coming out had caused them to drift apart. But he didn't know for sure because, like so many things, he and his father never actually talked about it. Finally, after months and months of Jason offering his kidney and his dad refusing, Jason decided it was time to ask some of the questions that had been on his mind all these years. So he went to go talk with his dad, and I went with him. Um, all right, I'll let you sure. go for it. 아빠가 한국에서 태어나서 살때 기억나는 게 있어? So, what do you remember from when you were born in Korea and lived there? 뭐 어떤 거? Like what? 메모리 아무거나. Like any memory. 아, 왜? Like, do you have any happy memories? I'm not sure what I'm supposed to say here. Jason is getting nowhere, so he decides to change tactics. So, when you first moved here, how was it for you, Dad? It was a lot harder than living in Korea. When I was in Korea, I didn't struggle. 
The business was going well, so I didn't have any big struggles. But it was hard after I came to America. So, Dad, when we moved, why did we move? We originally didn't really have plans to move out of the country, but when you came to the U.S. on a trip and went to school, you told me that you like school in America better and wanted to go to school in America. I don't remember that at all. I don't remember articulating any sort of desires outside of food or ice cream back when I was eight, nine years old. But apparently I said, that's what I said. And that planted the seed of yeah, coming here. I think so. Mm. So Jason's dad sent Jason and his mom ahead while he stayed back and sold the business. Even though you didn't want to come? Well, more so than not wanting to come or not, when I thought about it, I felt that only if we all lived together in America, our family would be happier and more comfortable. So I just came. After we moved here, and after I went to Craig Elementary School and Middle School and when I was about in high school, what did you think I would be? I was worried. (laughs) (laughs) What'd you worry about, Mom? Jason's mom says that as a kid, he wanted to be a doctor. But when he got to middle school, he changed his mind. He wanted to be a writer. And Jason's mom had a lot of feelings about it. You made that decision, but I thought, if you became a writer, you wouldn't make too much money, right? So I was worried about that. I wanted you to have a more reliable job. And she was pretty insistent on that, until Jason's dad intervened. So then, your dad told me, everyone needs to do what they love. That's how you don't end up changing jobs midlife or something like that. He said, if you love something, you'll work harder. He said the number one reason he moved to the States is so that we can let Jason do what he loves doing. So if Jason wants to do what he loves, we just need to believe in that. So from that point on, when you called, you know, I used to say to you a lot, we believe in you. I'm sorry. <laughs> so I asked her how and why she changed her mind, and she said it was because of my dad. And I didn't know that. Mom, what did you go She's like, I'll get you some tissues. As Jason sits across from his dad, silently wiping away tears, it feels like something has cracked open. There was so much he hadn't considered about what his dad had been thinking and feeling over the years. What else had he been wrong about? 
So he starts bringing up his memories, the ones that felt so monumental in how he understood his relationship to his father. There was the time he had pointed out that Charlie Sheen was attractive, when he thought for sure his dad had started to be disappointed in him. Oh, you would ask questions about things like that, but I didn't really know a lot about American actors. He asked about the time his mom had gone to his dorm room and seen all the posters of the hot guys. Did she talk to you about it? Yeah, she didn't tell him anything, really. So if it wasn't disappointment, if it wasn't disapproval, then why had they stopped communicating? When you first went to college, after being together for high school, when you got to New York, I would always be waiting for you to call. So how did that feel when I didn't call very often? I mean, I just waited, thinking, oh, his phone must not be working, so I waited. I mean, there wasn't anything I could do, so I just waited. It's at this point that Jason realizes he has something to admit himself. It's true. His calls home were less frequent, but it wasn't because of bad cell phone service. So back then, I, I wanted to call after I got to New York. I wanted to make new friends and drink alcohol, and I wanted to date men. So I was scared, Dad, to call, because I thought if I called you, you might be sad or disappointed. So I was a little afraid. I never felt that way. I never felt like disappointed or anything like that. I didn't. And I just always wanted you to do what you think is right and not do what you think is not right. And I wanted you to always work hard and be better than others because second place is not first place. Whatever you decide, try hard. Always be better than others. At this point, there was only one question left to ask. The hardest question. So, Dad, in the scenario that I gave you, the scenario where you take my kidney and have the surgery, what are you most afraid of? Well, it's what I was saying. But what are you afraid of the most? Most afraid of? I'm most afraid of you having some kind of issues later on. That I would have issues later on. I thought maybe because I had a boyfriend, you thought my kidney would be bad. 
would be dirty. No, I don't feel that way. I don't. But dad, people who donate kidneys, do you know that most of them are healthy? After they donate, they're healthy. Do you know that? There are a lot of people who donate their kidneys and have no issues. But still, having two kidneys versus one, there's a difference. There might be other problems because of that. So there are examples like that too. It's not non-existent. Because you get affected, because your body will weaken. Like, you know how when my kidney functions declined, my whole body's functions declined as well. But why was it so difficult to tell me that? It can't not be difficult. You wanted to give it to me, and I didn't want to. I mean, that was difficult. You're still sick. And if I could do something about the fact that you're sick, it would be better. So what do you think I should do about this? You can't do anything about it, and I'm not going to change the mind I've already made up. I'm going to stay like this. My kidney is bad, so I'm sick. I understand that. I accept that. If I live a long time, it would be good for you and good for your mother. But that's just fate. How we'll live, and whether I'll live a long time on dialysis, we don't know that. It's just like that. We just don't know. So. I must deal with being sick for a little bit, just like this. Dad, please get better and live a long time. I love you. Eventually, we got up and stretched our legs, made our way to the kitchen. Jason's mom boiled water for more tea, and the mood turned lighter. His dad even laughed a little. It hadn't been the conversation Jason planned for. He hadn't expected his entire understanding of his father to fall apart and then be put back together as a kinder image than before. It made his dad's refusal of the kidney all the more difficult to accept, but somehow easier to understand.
in? Okay, yeah, cool. A couple weeks later, I checked in on Jason to see how he felt after talking with his dad. I think I felt very relieved, actually. And I was actually on a little bit of a high for a couple of days because we ended up talking about stuff during that interview that my dad in real life has never said before. And with the kidney stuff, it felt like even though he gave me an answer that I didn't want to hear, I was relieved to have any answer. But on the other hand, I feel so burdened. Watching him physically deteriorate as I live on the incredible grace, really, of a sacrifice is tough to take for me. Yeah. Is there any part of you that's like, that now is like, oh, of course, of course it was about protecting me? There is. After he said it, I thought, oh, yes, the ultimate sacrifice is making sure that I stay healthy and making sure that your family is okay before yourself. Yeah. What do you think it was that sort of made you overlook that as an option? I think that when people stop communicating, your mind goes at first 20 miles an hour and then 50 miles an hour and then eventually 100 and 1,000 miles an hour. And for me, in the years where I wasn't really opening up to my dad and he wasn't really opening up to me, my mind was racing as fast as possible. Hmm. I mean, is there still a part of you that thinks you can convince him to take your kidney? Yeah, the selfish part. Now that we finally arrived at a place where he said the things that I want to hear and I have been more open with him, I'm thinking, oh man, our life can really begin now. Our relationship as two grown adults can start because I want to hear everything he has to say. By the way, Jason's dad eventually got off the waitlist for a transplant. An anonymous donor gave him a kidney. Because of confidentiality, the family doesn't know who the donor is, but he's doing well. You've been listening to a very special episode of Nancy, all about a different kind of coming out. I'm Tobin Lowe. And I'm Kathy Too. We've reached the end of the special. You can hear more stories and conversations about the LGBTQ experience at nancypodcast.org. And don't forget to subscribe to Nancy wherever you get your podcasts. Nancy is a production of WNYC Studios. The team includes Zakia Gibbons, Jeremy Bloom, Temi Fagbenle, Stephanie Joyce, and Paula Schumann. Special thanks to Jacqueline Sincata, Melissa LaCase, and Alicia Allen for helping us put together this special hour of radio. Thanks so much for listening to this special feed, The Sound of Pride, Stonewall at 50. If you like what you hear, you can find more coverage from WNYC by visiting wnyc.org slash stonewall50.